0: Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. And a happy Monday, everyone. Welcome back to another week of Fantasy NBA Today. I'm your host, Dan Vesperis. We roll through off-season week number three. I can still keep track of it. I'm going to try to say it during every show, and that'll ingrain it in my mind. So this is off-season show number 11. We're going to have lesson learned. Eh, this is like kind of lesson in progress today, but it'll, it'll fall under the header of lesson learned number 9. We can continue to scratch the marks in our cell walls here. <laughs> Whatever. Um... So, yeah, we rumble along. I mean, I don't know, you know, whatever else I can tell you about all this stuff. We uh, thank you, as always, folks continuing to uh, to listen to the podcast here during the offseason. That's pretty damn cool. And uh, we'll, we'll keep it rolling. That's the way we go at this point. I'm uh, Dan Vespers at Dan Vespers on Twitter. I think I might have even told you that already. Uh, sportsethos.com, the website. I got sidetracked. My brain went fluttering off into no man's land there. But we've got a lesson learned today. We've also got some playoff uh, recapping, really more look-aheading to do because I don't. This show is not about who's actually advancing and who's not. This show is about whether or not we can make a couple of bucks, effectively betting the playoffs, mostly totals, and applying those strategies to games throughout. So we got three games coming up tonight: Boston at Brooklyn, Celtics lead that series three games to none. Phillies hosting Toronto, uh, Sixers are up three games to one and Utah and Dallas are deadlocked. Luka Doncic, of course, is back in that series now, but we'll just keep doing what we've been doing, which is looking at previous games, finding trends, particularly in the pace of play, and then applying that to, you know, maybe throwing a bet down. Boston beat Brooklyn on the road in their last ball game. Celtics continue to play terrific defense. 109-103, total of 212. You guys can do the math on that. That went under the posted line of 222. But what we always want to do is take a look at any extenuating circumstances. And on that Boston side, there really weren't many. They shot the ball relatively well. They made their free throws, but there were very few. One of the extremely rare times where free throws were not hyper prevalent in a playoff game these days. And so from a pace standpoint, they had about 105 possessions, give or take. And so they were pretty close to that number. Went over just by a little bit. On the Brooklyn side, they shot the ball better in this one, with the exception basically of Kyrie Irving, who had more of an off night. But 18 turnovers won't do, and then if they're not going to take care of the basketball, they need to get to the free-throw line a little bit more. So they were right on their mark of 103, again, despite a good shooting ball game. But what we did see here is, once again, from a pace standpoint, this game only had, between the two teams, about two hundred and eight possessions which if you don't get a big time offensive performance wasn't going to go over 222 that had a long way to go to get there they got you know a couple points closer because boston was a little better than expected but not nearly far enough the numbers come down a little bit 220 and a half is the total for this ball game as we speak right now it opened at 220 so it's been fairly consistent Nets opened as a two and a half point home favorite. That number's actually come down. They're only about a one, one and a half point favorite now. Mostly because people are writing the obituary on Brooklyn already. My Twitter timeline is completely jammed with quotes from Kevin Durant about how he hates moving the basketball and how it's not actually Steve Nash in charge and all sorts of stuff that, you know, whatever accuracy it might be. The feeling is that the Nets are done. They could very easily win this ballgame. And if you think they do, you probably expect that they'll have a better scoring output. You kind of have to. This is a series that's really piddling along, by the way. The previous game went to 221, remember, which also went under the posted total. That was at 225 for that ballgame. That one had more free throws. 65 of them, in fact. Although, admittedly, Brooklyn was right about on their number of possessions. Boston did a good job. They went over by a little bit, more like 9 instead of 3. But again, we're talking about effectively a series that was that had about 212 or so possessions in that ball game. And then this last one it had about 208, 209. And so it's doing the things that we expect it to do. My fear with potential closeout game unders is rampant fouling at the very end. And you'll see it. We haven't seen it yet because the team being closed out in a couple of series is one. The Raptors won to keep their season alive. The Nuggets won to keep their season alive. If those two teams were trailing at the end, you would have seen copious fouling because no one's just going to be like, all right, you know, we're down six with eight seconds left, we're done. They're going to foul again. They're going to run up. They're going to take a three-pointer. If they make it, they're going to foul again. They might even take the foul even if they miss the three-pointer. They might end up losing by 10 or 12, but they're going to give the opposition four, six free throws where maybe in a regular game, a non-closeout playoff game, or even a regular season game, they might have only given them two. It's like, all right, you know, we'll pick it up. We'll do it again in two days. So that's the fear with closeout unders. From a pace standpoint, this series continues to point to the under. It hasn't come close to this mark lately in terms of actual possessions. They got there because Boston was very good or pretty good offensively two games back. And then it just keeps getting, you know, more and more grindy on the basketball court. I don't know that the Nets have a really good solution at this point. They haven't made any real adjustment yet. You know, why do we think it's going to happen between game three and game four where they only had one day off? This is a slow moving series. They've had plenty of time to make adjustments. So slightly into the under with, of course, the closeout fear element baked in. But you could also do a correlated parlay if your book allows it. If you think the Nets win, it actually probably has higher likelihood of going under in that case. It probably means that they deed up and the Celtics didn't have a good offensive game. Uh, if the Celtics are winning a tight one that's you know just outside of one possession or whatever it might be, then you're going to get all those free throws. I guess the thing is here... You know, you look at how could this game play out. Celtics, if they Celtics are winning by a lot, it probably goes under. If the Celtics are winning by a little, it probably goes over. If the Nets are winning, it's probably on its way to an over actually as well because it probably means that they, you know, were scoring points. And so you kind of look at it like, all right, there's about 2 out of 4 prob, you know, possible game paths here. And it's kind of split 50-50 on which would lead us to an over and which to an under. Where in normal circumstances, I wouldn't have the, you know, if Nets are losing by 5 or 6, will they foul a whole bunch? That wouldn't really be on the table if it wasn't a closeout game. So you add in that extra element, and it does freak me out a bit on the total. But again, just from a pace standpoint, we haven't gotten anywhere near 220. Especially with the way the Celtics are playing defense on Brooklyn. Kevin Durant was better in the last one, and I still, you know, we're three games in. We haven't had that one where KD and Kyrie have both looked really good at the same time. Maybe that's this one. We keep thinking it's going to be at least one of them, and running out of chances for it to be one of them. Ever so slight lean to the under. As usual, no real lean on the side. Philly-Toronto, at some point, they're going to get this total low enough at some point uh they keep bringing it down and it keeps going under. This line today is at 211. Uh and it's possible now that they might have finally gotten far enough. The last game between these two teams uh was 112 or 110 102. So 212 was the total. It it just barely ticked under the final the closing line of 213 and a half. And I think that was one of those ones. I might have even said that I thought maybe because of how slow the previous game... I'm trying to remember what the hell we talked about on the Friday podcast. I truly don't remember what what was said. What I did note was that the pace was so crazy slow in that first game in Toronto that even with overtime, it didn't get to the posted number. Um, And even in overtime, you're talking about a game that, you know, from a pace standpoint... How many possessions are we talking about here? It was like one... 106 on one side and 105 on the other. So it should have been at about 211 in overtime in overtime. We're talking about here. So I think I still said there was room for an under and it did go under, um, but barely because they got to that 211 basically that we were talking about with possessions and it was in overtime. So this one moved a little bit quicker, uh, Let's see. Philly had how many about 108 possessions. Toronto got a bunch of free throws. That was very useful. Pascal Siakam had a big ball game. Their possession number was much higher. Much higher. It's not entirely clear how. They out-rebounded Philly by 5 for fewer turnovers. So I guess that's about 9 if you want to talk about it just from like a general standpoint of how do you add a few extra possessions in a ball game? Um, but they were up at about like 115, 116, which is, yeah, I mean, I guess it's about nine more. That's basically what they won by doing the math that way. So, uh, that one actually, believe it or not, went under because neither team shot the ball well, but the game did go a little faster. Toronto was able to put their pace into it a little bit. Here's the interesting thing. The bet here on game four, five, we can count, is, again, that line is Philly by seven and a half, total of 2.11. Yeah, it's a 2.11 right now. Last one ticked over by a hair, but it was fast enough to go over by more than that. So there was this kind of rebounding after game three was just painfully slow to a Game 4 that had a little bit more pace to it. Was it because Freddie Van Vliet was out, so Toronto had to do something different? They had to get out and run a little bit. Both teams kind of got caught up in it. And then you had the 60 free throws, which also made a big deal. Uh, but Philly's been taking a ton of free throws in this series anyway. I just, you know, Joel and B didn't have a very good ball game. He had five turnovers. It, you know, I think there was just a little bit of a lack of focus on the Philly side and Harden shot the ball horribly, but I wouldn't look at the shooting stuff because I don't think the shooting percentage is going to be all that high, and I do think you get fewer possessions when the field goal percentage comes up because you just don't have rebounds and run, rebound and run, offensive rebound, short shot clock. All those things, missed shots, do lead to a few extra possessions in a ballgame. 2-12 is a pretty good number. There might be a tiny bit of wiggle room on the over if you think that this... That the game gets back into that, I'm gonna say 107, 108 plus about 116. I mean, it was like 223, 224 possessions in that ball game, so it was faster significantly than previous ball games, or just more chances. I'll tell you, I don't know. I was surprised to see a game that picked up like that, that moved a little bit quicker, sort of, t- I would say tangibly so. But if the Sixers do their thing, they're gonna try to grind this thing to a halt. Are they focused? I would I would think so. But then again, you get closeout stuff. Closeout games do tick up a few, four, five, six, seven, eight extra points at the very end of the ball game. So that makes me nervous. Jazz Mavs is not a closeout game, so at least we can wipe that off the board. Total right now sits at 212.5. Mavericks a two and a half point uh, home favorite. This one's shifting back to Dallas. Luca was very good in his return. Um, I would argue, though, that, that Utah was better defensively because they could kind of use their game plan, which I, I don't. I had to sort of throw it out, and they just weren't at all ready for Dallas spreading them out like crazy. Maxi Kleba barely got to play. He fouled out in 18 minutes. Maybe that was the difference. You couldn't stretch the floor quite the same way. Either way, Utah, to me, feels like they're they're hanging on a little bit. Dallas feels like they're probably getting back into a rhythm a bit as well. Um, that'd be a pretty good ball game. Curious to see what Utah's defense looks like here in Dallas. How does, how does this one play out? You know, Luca back. Everybody kind of getting their footing, having the main guy back in the mix. Money is coming in on the over, for whatever that's worth, despite the fact that Utah won 199 in that last ball game. So there's just a general feeling that uh, the low number here of two twelve, which is a relatively low total for these for the NBA these days, just is too low. Um, it's worth pointing out, however, that I mean Dallas really only had about ninety nine possessions in that ball game, ninety nine hundred something like that. Utah shot forty two free throws, missed most of them. But again, you know, fewer turnovers, slightly better rebounding. That did help their cause. Rudy Gobert, there was a hack Rudy stuff going on as well. He shot 18 of them. So that number a little bit inflated and also added some possessions to the ball game. I mean, this one was, I would argue, even slower than what it was. Than the 199 final number. Turnovers were low. Free throws were pretty high and they still didn't crack 200. So, and I think Dallas plays a little bit slower with Luka. Because he's going to run the offense. He's going to run a pick and roll. It's not going to be as much get-out-and-go type of stuff. Now, do the teams potentially shoot better in this ballgame? Yeah, I mean, that's very much on the table. But this is moving slowly. This is a slow series. Pace was about 210 number of possessions, so the total not all that far off. But, boy, I mean, if you don't think that there's going to be a crap ton of of fouling and to add to the the number of possessions in the ball game I mean I could see this thing going under again it's worth looking back at uh some earlier games Dallas beat Utah I remember 126 118 that game went over the posted total by about 35 and kind of created a new under bubble because the pace wasn't anywhere near 244 both teams just went nuts shooting the basketball There were 64 free throws in that ballgame, only 22 turnovers. It was similar to this last one, but the team shot 49 and 57% respectively instead of 42 and 40. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Not many. It was about 100 for Utah. They went blasting past that with 118 points. And it was like 106, 107 for Dallas. And they went blasting over that by like 20 also. These games are targeted for about a 200-point finish. It was a beautiful thing because when that super high-scoring game came in and the next ball game, you know that game that went over, that total was 207.5. So then the next one came in seven points higher it created a huge bubble for us underneath the 214 this one's still oh you know over 210 i think there might be room i think there might be room if we're always looking for unders that's probably the one that i would look at the closest of the games today mostly because it's not an elimination game all right lesson of the day and this is this is a little interesting um So this isn't really a lesson that you can learn from one year alone. Uh it's something that I want us to it's something that I want us to be to be sort of cognizant of and to be aware of again in future seasons. I think we probably need to build a little bit more data and some of what we learn about this stuff comes from our how did the big box sites do, or how did ADPs do, and stuff like that, where we see where you can diverge from the board. But really, what I want to do today is about a 5 to 15 minute, I don't know exactly how far we're going to go on this, dive on what goes right in the 6th, 7th, and 8th rounds. So basically... And this is rounding a tad because the sixth round, the first pick is, you know, 61, which is feels a lot earlier than the end of round eight, which is in the mid 90s. They are very different types of players. You can get at 60 versus 95. But really, it, you know, it's sort of like the end of the sixth round. It's basically 70 through 100. Or at least that's what it was this year. And we can even extend a tiny bit earlier than 60 if you want to pull in some names. But what I'm looking at here, and we I mean, we can go 55 to 95 or 55 to 100 or something like that. It doesn't really matter. The point is, how do we figure out what's going wrong with those picks? Because the fifth round, the success rate is extraordinarily high. I'm looking at a pretty damn competitive Roto League I'm in, and the names in the fifth round were... In the very beginning of it, Tyrese Halliburton, DeJounte Murray, Jonas Valanciunas, these were huge successes. Lonzo Ball was kicking ass before he got hurt. Robert Williams, John Morant ended up outperforming, not by a ton, but by some. CJ McCollum was pretty solid outside of the injury. Jeremy Grant, Pascal Siakam, who we said was sort of the one hurt guy who did outperform his ADP in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. The misses in the fifth round were Isaiah Stewart, Chris Boucher in this league, although he typically went later than that. This was really weird. This is weirdly early for Boucher. He, he tended to go more in the 75 to 85 range. So I don't know that I want to put him in there, but I will just because he is. And Draymond Green, who was hurt for most of the year. So Draymond missed because he was hurt. That's an easy one to knock off the board. Otherwise, that one probably would have been fine. He'd have coasted along with his do a little bit of everything stuff. Uh, But the ones that didn't work, that weren't injury-related, were Isaiah Stewart and Chris Boucher. So keep those in the back of your head. Again, 10, effectively, were gonna hit in that round. 10 out of 12, and then a couple of injuries sidelined two of them. Round six, Darius Garland, Terry Rozier, DeMar DeRozan, Malcolm Brogdon, Kyle Lowry, Derek White, Rob Covington, Jakob Purtle, Gordon Hayward, Collins Sexton, Jared Allen, Norman Powell. It's a very similar story in round six. Garland hit, obviously, you know, buttressed, buoyed by injuries to both Colin Sexton and Ricky Rubio. So he had all the guard stuff to himself, but he was probably going to hit anyway, or at least he was going to be very close to it. Cherry Rozier, big hit. DeMar DeRozan, big hit. Malcolm Brogdon was rolling, and then he got hurt. Kind of the same old thing with him. Kyle Lowry, not so much. I think we can effectively say that, right? He wasn't very good. And I want to make sure you guys remember, Kyle Lowry is the one guy I said was literally too old for the Dan Vesper's old man squad. Although, uh, I think at the end of it all, his per-game value was 65. So he wasn't, like... He wasn't a big miss. It felt worse than it was for Lowry. But we'll move on. Derek White, uh, he was doing relatively well. Then he got traded. So that one kind of sidelined. That one, Rob Covington ended up with a pretty good year when all was said and done. Pirtle was good. Hayward, injury. Sexton, injury. Although I still felt this was too early for him. Jared Allen was great before his injury. Like, great, great. And Norman Powell, trade and an injury. So it's kind of the same story. But if we look at the guys that didn't hit in this round, Derek White, trade-related, Malcolm Brogdon, injury-related, Sexton, injury-related, and I don't even, I mean, I feel like Jared Allen actually still hit his marks despite the injury this year. So, so far now, we're in, you know, we're 24 picks into this, round 5, round 6, and the only two players that where it wasn't injury or trade-related, Isaiah Stewart and Chris Boucher. And Boucher had a long stretch this year where he was actually pretty good, but you needed someone to be out for it to make sense. Which I don't know that we can necessarily call that. I don't. I wouldn't call that a victory. I would call that a miss with some luck. Now things start to get a little bit more hairy. Round seven, round eight, the hit rate goes down. Here's round seven from this league. Zion, Kyrie Irving, Mitchell Robinson, D'Lo, Conley, Bogdan, Bogdanovich, Kemba Walker, Andrew Wiggins, Jonathan Isaac, Marcus Smart, Buddy Heald, Kevin Porter Jr. Zion, Miss, Kyrie, I don't know, whatever the hell you want to call it. Whatever you were trying to do there, you probably knew what you were going to get into. Mitchell Robinson, I'll call that a hit. D'Angelo Russell hit, Conley hit, Bogdan hit, Kemba miss, Wiggins, I don't even know what Wiggins was. Call him a hit, he was durable again. Jonathan Isaac miss, Marcus Smart hit, Buddy Heald hit, Kevin Porter miss. So that one kind of went, that one went 7-5, hit miss. Let's talk about the misses. Zion didn't play, Kyrie mostly didn't play. Kemba looked like he might play, but... We could say it was because he got aced out, but it was more complicated than that. He was just too old. He didn't get minutes, and he wasn't aggressive. Jonathan Isaac, injury, and Kevin Porter Jr. uh, percentages. So the story is similar here in round seven, but with a couple of tweaks. Kemba Walker, I think, is one we have to put in with Boucher and Isaiah Stewart as someone that just flat out missed despite getting opportunity at the beginning of the year. And Kevin Porter was one that I mean we did a, I practically did a whole show on why he shouldn't be drafted inside the top 125, and yet there he went anyway. But he goes on that list as well. So add two more names to the non-injury list, taking chances on Zion, Kyrie, things like that. I mean you you knew you were rolling the dice. I still don't I can't believe Jonathan Isaac didn't play this year, but otherwise everything went okay. Finally, let's do round eight. Ben Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to say there. Daniel Gafford, I think I'm going to call it a miss. I know he had a couple of stretches where he was pretty good. He was good early in the year when the job was only his. He was number 130 on a per-game basis, which is fine. But there was was definitely a hope for more. And he was kind of in that, like, 85-95 range when he was the only center. So, you know, fine. But... If you are drafting him here, you were hoping that this was something that might stick a little bit longer term. So uh, he's a tough one. He's, like, right on the borderline. Kelly Olenek, miss. Sorry, guys. Uh, Brooke Lopez, he's a miss, but, again, injury. We'll talk about it. Evan Mobley, big hit. Karis LeVert, miss. Cade Cunningham, call it a wash. We can call it a hit because it wasn't a disaster. P.J. Washington, that one ended up as a hit, especially when Gordon Hayward went down. Mo Bamba, hit. Jalen Green, Miss until the very end. Slow-mo, miss. TJ McConnell, miss. Okay. This is a little more interesting now. Because the misses in round eight are less reliant on injury. Simmons didn't play all year, so you can wipe him off. Brooke Lopez, I think he actually would have been a hit in round eight, if not for his back thing. Because he looked pretty good when he came back. And we know how important he is to that Bucks team. Um. Daniel Gafford was basically a miss because, you know, the minutes just weren't secure. Kelly Olenek was a miss because the minutes weren't secure. Karis Levert was a miss because, well, he got traded. Actually, things were going okay for him. He also started the year hurt, remember? He had a stress reaction in his back. And then he kind of got going, and then he got moved. So a lot of lot of factors with Karis. Although, again, you know overall, his fantasy game is not as good as it looks outside of points leagues. P.J. Washington, he was actually on his way to a being a miss when he and Mason Plumlee were splitting time, but one injury forced him into the lineup, so I don't know which column we put him in. But Mo Bamba was a hit, Jalen Green was a miss because he was a rookie, Kyle Anderson was a miss because he didn't really play, and T.J. McConnell was a miss for a number of reasons. When that Pacers team was healthy and Lavert was also there, He was too far down the pecking order. I think if Levert had been traded and McConnell was still there, he would have been really good, even if Brogdon was playing. We saw that last year. But he got pushed too far down the pecking order. But I think the point to make here, and we could even do this very quickly in round nine, but the names you can add to our board of Chris Boucher, Isaiah Stewart. Did I put anyone on the board from round six? I don't know that I did this year. I don't think I did. Uh, Round seven, you had Kemba we added. And then and Kevin Porter Jr., but again, sort of a different story there. And then round eight, we added Gafford and Alinek and Levert and Jalen Green and Slow Mo, all these guys that it wasn't fluky. Round nine, it's kind of the same thing. Nerlens Noel just didn't have opportunity. DeAndre Hunter didn't have a good fantasy game. These are the these are the misses in round nine. Nikhil Alexander-Walker, I, I, don't, I don't even know. Uh, Jordan Clarkson, just it's a fantasy game thing. Evan Fournier, opportunity. Larry Nance, injury and opportunity. Duncan Robinson just wasn't very good this year. Keldon Johnson ended up good after the All Star break. But what I think we're noticing, and I know that that was a needlessly long, that was like a seven minute tour down 50 picks in a roto league. But the point that I wanted to make with all of that was, particularly as you get into round, and, and it, a little bit in round five and six, I wanted to include them because it does happen as early as in the 50s where something just implodes. The main reason, as you look at those names that I that were not injury-related, and some of the injury stuff you could predict, like you knew Malcolm Brogdon was going to get hurt, you knew Gordon Hayward was going to get hurt, those guys always get hurt, always. Mike Conley's always going to miss some games for injury. The guys that were not successes because of injury, some of them we could have foreseen. Kyle Lowry missing some games. Oh, they actually ended up in what? 60? No. Was it 61? Something like that. So, eh, like, again, older. That kind of deal. Too old. But if we forget about the injury stuff for a minute, and you can't forget about it entirely because it's going to hit you at some point. You know, if you if you drafted Brook Lopez in the eighth round, you know, it sucks. He was going to be a hit. Remember that for next year. He was going to be a hit. He's not washed. They still love him. He's still the starter. But if we're looking at the guys that either hit or missed, starting basically from round seven, you know, we could say pick 73, but again, it's ballparking at that point. The ones that missed for non-injury, non-vaccine, non-fluky type reasons missed mostly because of minutes and opportunity. Chris Boucher didn't have opportunity when the when the Raptors were healthy. Isaiah Stewart didn't have the minutes. Hard to see that one coming. I never would have drafted him in the fifth round. That was really, really early. Uh, I did take him in one league, but it was in the late seventh, I think. Because the thought was that he'd probably get 28 to 30 minutes a ballgame, and that didn't really happen until the very end of the year. So I don't know what that means for next season, but the minutes weren't there. And they weren't guaranteed. You know, Detroit brought in other big men in the offseason, even after trading one away. Kemba Walker, Knicks picked him up off the scrap heap. There was no guarantee he was going to get a a bunch of minutes. It felt like probably, but then not in that offense, although it's a totally different monster if Julius Randle is not there. Still, he is there. So you you can't create this fabrication in our minds, and I took Kemba in a couple of spots, and I paid for it. Same story in round eight, Daniel Gafford. We knew even as the lone center, he wasn't going to get more in about 24 minutes of ballgame. And as guys started to come back, we knew that there was going to be a logjam. Even if ultimately they were like, oh, Gafford, yeah, you'll probably win the day. Thomas Bryant was going to get to play a little bit. And then they traded for Kristaps, which was another monster. And I'm sorry on this one. I thought Kelly Olynyk was going to play 25 minutes of ballgame. He didn't. The minutes, the opportunity, wasn't there. Jalen Green was a rook. The minutes and opportunity were there, but that was one where you, you know, Roto, that was going to be a difficult one. Head-to-head, that you were just hanging on until you figured things out. Slow-mo, opportunity. Minutes and opportunity. TJ McConnell, minutes and opportunity. He was buried. Nerland's Noel doesn't actually need that many minutes, but so his mostly was health He didn't barely play at all this year. Alexander Walker, minutes and opportunity. Larry Nance, minutes and opportunity. Once you get into round nine, you know, past 100, 105, round 10, 11, 12, there's a lot of reasons why guys just don't work. But I do think that the lesson of the day, the thing I want to really highlight about all this is that through the first six rounds, even seven, even eight if you want to go that far, Don't draft someone that you don't think is going to play normal starters minutes. And they're still out there, by the way. And all of those guys don't always hit. Now, they're going to be misses of guys playing starters minutes. You can see some of them coming. R.J. Barrett going in round 10. He's going to play starters minutes. Well, we know enough about his fantasy game to know what does and doesn't work. But, you know, taking a shot on... Sorry, this one's on me. Larry Nance in the ninth round in some spots was dumb. That was dumb looking back. I love Larry Nance and I love his fantasy game. And you're seeing what he's doing healthier now with the Pelicans. And we saw what he was doing when he had some wiggle room and Portland finally let him play a little bit. But we knew he was starting the season behind Yusuf Nurkic. And Rob Covington was going to be the stretch four. We knew he wasn't going to get starters minutes right out of the boat that a best-case scenario was like 23, 24, 25 to begin and ramping up slowly. And sometimes that's worth it. But at that juncture, where he was drafted in this particular league, just looking at guys that were still on the board, Al Horford was still out there, starters minutes. Lowry Markinen was still out there, starters minutes. You can look at the wins in each individual round. By the way, they get few and far between after about round 10. There are barely any wins the rest of the way. Ivica Zubats was actually pretty good for a while this year. Starters minutes, they drifted away over time. We ended up splitting them. Jordan Poole, big-time starters minutes, especially while Clay was out. Went after Larry Nance. Just looking for guys that were basically guaranteed starters minutes from the first day of the year. DeAnthony Melton with no... Uh, Dylan Brooks, pretty much guaranteed starters minutes at the beginning of the year, and he was a top 80 guy when people were out on that team. Gary Trent Jr., starters minutes. Desmond Bain, starters minutes. I hate to say this one, but Kyle Kuzma, Seth Curry, starters minutes. Scotty Barnes, we didn't know he was going to be that good, so I don't want to beat us up about it. Who had guaranteed starters minutes and what was the hit rate on those guys? Because the number of players, once you get past round 12, there are barely any starter minutes left. Some guys that ended up with it that we didn't know, Tyrese Maxey. I dropped him early in one league. That's my idiotic drop of the year. Only once. I did it only once. Will Barton went in the 14th round. He had starters minutes. And he had a really good like first three months and then kind of ran out of gas. We talked about Bain already. Bobby Portis wasn't going to get starters minutes, but he ended up with them, so that was something. A couple games in. But basically, what I'm I'm telling you guys is that in the eighth round, there are still 10 to 15 guys on the board, even by the middle or the end of it, that are going to get starters minutes. Miles Bridges, starters minutes, went in the ninth round in this league. Wendell Carter Jr., starter's minutes. Harrison Barnes, starter's minutes. If you're looking for, and I know we always want to take shots on guys, shots, take a shot, go for somebody that we don't know how much they're going to play, but if they do, wabamo. Wha- and that's fine and all. But not that many of those guys worked out between the ninth and the end of the draft. The take a shot guys pretty much all ended on the waiver wire. I'm literally trying to find any that didn't end up on the waiver wire that I would classify as a take a shot kind of guy at that point in a draft. I really I truly don't know. I truly don't know. They pretty much all ended up on the wire. Is Scotty Barnes maybe the take a shot guy that didn't? Tyrese Maxey maybe was the take a shot guy that didn't. That's good. That's 2 out of about 50. So the lesson of the day is specifically starting, I mean really anytime <laughs> uh we didn't really know how many minutes Time Lord was going to play, but you know, there are these exceptions where if you know a guy is going to get like Time Lord, we know how great he was in 20 minutes a game. I mean, He's a top 60 guy in 20 minutes a game. So there was there was no way it was dipping below that mark. And he was going to be the starter. We didn't know how Horford was going to get used, but we knew he was going to get used a lot. And then we found out and it was awesome. By the way, have your drafts really close to the start of the season, because that also makes some of this type of judgment call stuff a little easier. Uh but round five, round six, seven, eight, nine. Really nine. Once you get past nine, there just aren't that many options left at that point. But the whole damn way through, if you have someone out there that doesn't have the worst fantasy game on earth, because there are starters mixed in there where you're like, no, I, don't, I I can't. Like Reggie Jackson in a league that counts field goal percent, despite knowing he was going to get starters minutes, that was always going to be a little bit of a long shot. Sadiq Bey, kind of the same story. Starters minutes, but fantasy game wise this was going to be a tough one but you've got these options you've got you know from pick it's hard to i can't put an exact number on it but the end of the round end of round 7 is pick 84 and i would argue that in this draft and in most drafts after about 85 90 picks there's probably 10 to 15 starter level guys left and you're not going to get all of them They'll get scooped up at some point. I don't think there was a single one in the 15th round of this draft that actually had any kind of starters minutes attached to them. Yeah, there wasn't a single one. None of them. I don't think any of those dudes ended up, stayed on a fantasy team. Bobby Portis went in the 15th round, and that one only stuck because uh, Burke Lopez got hurt, because he probably would have been on and off of rosters a little bit. I mean, we're talking like one guy in the 14th or two guys in the 14th. So there aren't many once you get that deep into a draft. But round 8, round 9, round 10, there's usually three, four, five, or more guys set to play starters level minutes that are still on the board for you. Again, it's not a be-all, end-all kind of deal here. But the lesson of the day is if you want to dodge misses in the 5th, 6th, 7th rounds, don't take a guy whose minutes aren't secure. And if you want to hunt For some guys that are likely to overperform a little bit, look for someone who's going to be playing starters minutes. It's a really easy starting point. I'm trying to... Let's simplify. We can always try to be the smartest person in the room. That's out there. But let's do that starting at round 11. Okay. That's your Monday. Hope you enjoyed that. Tomorrow? You know, I might break down a team tomorrow. I feel like I want to do a team... I also want to talk to some people, get some lessons from everybody else again. We've only had uh, lessons from Matt Klauser on the show so far. That's not enough. Whatever. I'm Dan Vasperis, This is Fantasy NBA Today, a Sports Ethos presentation. Have a lovely Monday. Enjoy the playoff games. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow.